you can't say playing multiple sports is good for an athlete, early specialization is bad for an athlete, and then go on to say that you have to do everything game specific. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Basketball Strong Podcast. I'm Tim DeFrancesco, former LA Lakers strength and conditioning coach and doctor of physical therapy, and I'm here with my co-host, Emmy-nominated writer and author, Phil White. This podcast is not just for basketball junkies. It's for anyone who loves to hear the human stories behind great people while learning the science behind preparing your body for the court and high performance. On today's episode, we welcome back one of the world's best basketball strength trainers, Paul Fabritz. If you didn't have a chance to listen to part one, it is episode number 32. Get back there and listen. Before I get into what Paul shares in this part two episode, I want to welcome any newcomers to the Basketball Strong podcast community. Phil and I love seeing this grow. We love seeing that we have new listeners all the time, and we want to hear from you. So shoot me an email, tim at basketballstrongpodcast.com. And also, oh, by the way, that enters you into our specialty prize giveaway contest just by making sure you subscribe, drop a review, and leave me an email. And that's the other thing. The best way to help us grow and to build this community is to, number one, share the link to the podcast with a friend or family member who you think would love it. And then number two, drop a review if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts. That is huge for us. Now, on episode number 32, part one with Paul Fabritz, we left off getting into and listening to Paul talk us through why he feels like we're getting into this zone of seeing young athletes or even pro athletes at an elite level see an increased risk of injury And Paul picks up right where he left off here. He simplifies the idea of load management, big buzzword. And also, he helps us to understand why the acute to chronic workload ratio, even for recreational athletes, is a huge advantage. You don't need any budget or fancy technology to use it, but it can be huge in reducing your injury risk and and also just improving your overall performance, avoiding things like overtraining. He gets into in this episode, and I love this, why he thinks that Olympic lifts are dicey territory with basketball athletes specifically, and he really lays out some nuances to that topic, not just sort of blindly saying he doesn't like them and and not giving a reason why. He also shares why he teaches his bounciest athletes not only how to land, but this is key, how to fall, how to hit the ground and fall properly. It's a really great part of the conversation. The piece that I loved was hearing him really boil down to three strategies that he used to boost his own vertical leap from 32 inches to 47 inches. I I took notes as he talked us through it and and have reviewed those notes. It's such a great three-pronged strategy to vertical jump development. And lastly, I loved on this episode the funny story about the first training session he ever did with James Harden. Let's get into the conversation. Break it down a little bit in terms of, so if, if we have a listener out there where, okay, I understand, Paul, not to spike it, but what, what, did, what do you even mean by chronic workload versus acute? Yeah, so the most basic way without technology and getting too advanced is I would just say monitor your RPE, rating of perceived exertion, scale yep. of 1 to 10, okay? Every day, you got to monitor that. So you did a strength workout, let's say that's a 7 out of 10. You did a skill workout. Let's say that was an eight out of 10. Now multiply that seven 
by the amount of minutes that you did. So let's say seven times it was 60 minutes, okay? And then you do that for your skill. That gives you your, let's say, your points for the day, right? Right. And so let's simplify it and just say that we're just looking at our strength. And let's say that we ended up at like uh, 100 points for that day. Now, every day, monitor that. And then at the end of the week, average that out. So what is your average for that week? Okay, now I need to go back and I need to look at the previous four weeks. And what is my average across those four weeks? So those four weeks, that is my, uh, that is my chronic. This is what I'm actually prepared to do. Yeah. So what is that average? Now, look at what I'm going to do this week. That is my acute. And now you're just going to divide them and you come up with a ratio. Typically, we want that acute to be between 0.8 and 1.3. So basically, 0.8, that means 80%. So this week, I'm doing 80% of what I've built up to, or 1.3 is 130%. So I'm not going to go over 30% above what I'm prepared to do. And so you could just do that. And and I know it's tough to listen to that and do the math, but just Google acute to chronic workload ratio. And in the studies, they have these formulas. Um, But uh, that's typically where we want to go. Now that, that below 0.8 people forget about that side. That means we're under training you. Yep. We get you in at 0.5. Well, shoot, I'm doing 50% of what you should be doing. 50% of what you're prepared to do. Now we have a detraining effect. And now you get tossed into that game and you are ripe for the injury. Yes. yes. And so undertraining is just as bad as overtraining. So don't go below 80% of what you're capable of. Don't go above 130. Now, you don't even need to be a wizard with this math, but just keeping this stuff in mind and going, yeah. huh, maybe I shouldn't double my workload. Like most people are spiking right. their workload by 250%. Like I'm not worried about, okay, you went up to 140, like you might get by if you're at 250, 300% of what you're prepared to do, you're going to get injured. It's just a matter of when. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other nice way to look at it too, is just, if you can understand at the, the, the most sort of basic level of, if you're taking your own RPEs or you're reporting your RPEs, and you're multiplying by those durations of the workout, you can get these units of workload. And then you can understand, okay, if I, because this is another place where this comes into in, in real value is where in the return to play. So that return to play phase, if you know kind of where you're at, and then you're only adding 10% layer week after week versus yeah. one week to a net, another you, you, you brought up is like, if you go by adding, 50%, you're doing 50% more than what you were doing last week. It's only a matter of time when it's not if, but if you yeah. just know that baseline, if you know that chronic load of wherever you're at or wherever you were at before injury and then wherever you're at now, you can just layer in 10%. And you could apply this to any person going back to any activity too. I love that. Yeah. 10%. That's a good way to think about it. You know, and it just gives that nice, easy layers and the body has time to adapt. The body has time to, you know, really accommodate and, and kind of keep, um, keep building in a way that isn't ripe for injury. Yeah. Our, as humans, our greatest gift is adaptability. Like that's right. the one thing that we have over every other animal is like high, high, high levels of adaptability, but you need patience and persistence to take full advantage of your 
greatest gift, adaptability. And so if you rush things, you'll never, and, and the people who say like, okay, running's bad for your knees, jumping is bad for your knees. It's the people who spiked their workload and right. got you doing it. And, and so they think that it was the task. It was not the task. It was, it was your the patience. Dose. It was yeah. the dose. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to us a little bit though, about what was, what changed in some of your training strategies that were tools that you started to hone in on that you said, okay, I need to put this in. And then all of a sudden you, you start to see your vertical jump go up 32, 34, 36, and then all the way up to 47 in that summer or that off season period or that injury and, and recovery period. Um, one thing is getting back to basics with plyometric progressions. Yeah. I think when I was in high school, I would just go work with, you know, whoever, whatever teammate or whatever other trainer, and they would just throw random plyometrics at you. Right. And I might not be like fully prepared for like a high box depth drop, you know, and I'm doing it and I'm getting by, but like, eventually I picked up, um, super training by Yuri Verkoshansky mm-hmm. and it was way beyond my reading comprehension. Like that stuff is so advanced, it's deep, man, man, it's so deep. And then there's the, like the, the English isn't perfect in it. It's still right. like, kind, it's like kind of in Russian, kind of. Right. <laughs> kind of in English. And so it was, it was beyond my level of comprehension, but I got the high level takeaways of it, of like how they progress plyometrics, um, how they use what they call shock training and just getting back to basics. Like I think a lot of kids and myself included, I was trying to find the fanciest looking plyometric exercise. Mm. And then it's once you realize what the body adapts to, it's like, well, Hey, a depth jump works better than all of these things, but you just got to start on a low box and gradually progress. And, you know, maybe you start with just the landing and then you work on just springing out and then you work on a small jump and then eventually you're working on bigger jumps. And so it was like getting really learning the fundamentals of, of plyometrics was huge for me. Um, another big thing was in the weight room, I switched from only doing super heavy bilateral deep squats to a lot of unilateral stuff. Mm. And, and I kept in some of that bilateral stuff, but I was doing like rear foot elevated. That was like my go-to. And this is, uh, you know, coaches don't like this, but I did it on a Smith machine. Yeah. Went to LA fitness. I did them on a Smith machine because when I was loading rear foot elevated, I was always like a little bit off balance. And I'm like, look, if I'm off balance, I can't actually produce force. So mm. it's like, what's the point of this? This is only really a stability exercise. And I'm getting my balance and stability from other areas. Like I get that from athletic training, from plyometrics, and I do it much better anyways. So I'm like, why am I, you know, why am I limiting my force producing capabilities by trying to do this with a barbell or just with dumbbells? And so once I pass the dumbbell stage where I'm holding like 80s, I just went to a Smith machine and I can produce maximal force on that Smith machine. I would do half ranges and then I would do full ranges and I would just alternate those uh, every workout. And that, that took me to the next level. Like my glutes, cause people think rear foot elevated is all quads, but their glutes and hamstrings and adductors oh, yeah. are the most sore the next day. Yeah. So like my post chain got so strong. My quads got strong. My knee pain went away. Like patella tendinopathy went away from getting that true heavy loading. Yeah. And, and then I balanced things out because we all, I think a lot of us have big imbalances naturally, which, you know, 15% totally normal, but we're imbalanced as humans already with like how our organs are set up. But then you throw in just a ton of heavy bilateral squatting and I'm taking over with that right side more and more. And I'm exacerbating that imbalance. 
And then when I went to the, the rear foot elevated as my go-to, I think I really brought up that left leg, which really helped me take off. Um, it, it helped me take off in two leg jumps, but then it got me way better at my one leg jumps as well. Yeah. Um, so those were like the two main things. And then I think the other thing is I started adding in one day a week of pool training. Mm. And that was huge for me because I can sneak in some like plyometric volume uh, without the impact on the joints. Yeah. And that helped me a lot, but it, it wasn't just that, like the water has a therapeutic effect. Like it's the That's best right. thing. I think it's the best thing you can do for recovery. So I got in and I would do my high knees and my leg swings through the airs and uh, through the air. And then I would do like single leg plyometrics, double leg plyometrics, um, all kinds of stuff, like good little 45 minute session. I did that every Wednesday to break mm -hmm. up my week. And I took that to this day, every Wednesday, we're doing a pool workout with our guys. Um, just cause that midweek, first of all, mentally, they need a break yeah. and getting them in the pool gives them that, the, the freshness that they need. Uh, but yeah, it's so good for recovery. And then there's also real training effects that we get from it. Um, so I'd say that was my probably big, my three biggest things is switching to primarily unilateral, throwing away the idea that machines are bad, like yep. hop on a machine yep. and produce some real force. Um, and then the pool workouts and just getting back to the basics of plyometrics. Yeah. No, that's that's incredible. I want to sort of recap some of those ingredients as I'm keeping track because ultimately if I really hear it and there's these other pieces of the the sort of secret weapon of that pool workout I want to tag into that in a second, but you have you lifted heavy stuff repeatedly the right way and in some cases very isolated ways. You you jumped in and did jumps and landings in a properly dosed way and back to the basics type of thing. And you kind of rinsed and repeat that aspect of it. You sprinkle in stuff like the nutrition, like the recovery, like the pool workouts. And that, that's really cool with the pool, pool workouts, what you bring up, because I think that the, um, you alluded to the training effects that happen there, but you essentially take out the eccentric sort of intensity of what's going on there. You take that part of it out as you're doing some, you can do some really explosive stuff actually in a more recovery based pool workout because it's not going to include that really high stress eccentric portion, which is necessary. You've got to do that in a, in a land-based portion of what you're doing, but then you get the resistance of the water is almost isokinetic, almost flywheel-like in some ways. The faster yeah. you move through that water, the more drag you create. And so yeah. you get this really cool concentric load without the eccentric. And it is exactly. such a, a great point by you to have that as a, a once a week type of a, a modality. But yeah. do I have that right? That kind of, you know, it's, it's a more, it's not as complicated as people want to make it. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's back to basics and it's getting rid of a lot of the extra fluff like there's a lot of fluff in my strength training and in my right. plyometrics. And it's like, let's, let's cut that out and like, let's get crazy efficient with it so yeah. that I can get in and out of the gym and I can be efficient and I can recover. Um, and then the, the one other thing that I forgot to say that I think was a huge key for me is I was going to a gym that had a rim that was like nine foot seven. And so I started being able to like really dunk and mentally it took me to a whole nother level. And the, the low rim dunking consistently, when I train, I work with a lot of pro dunkers, 50 inch verticals, they all grew up different. They all did different stuff. Some of them lift weights, some of them don't at all, but all of them grew up low rim dunking. Like wow. that's, a, that's the one ingredient that every great jumper has in common. They all grew up low rim because it just takes you, it takes your nervous system to a whole different level. The ability to see that dunk go in. Mm. 
And then it's like, okay, let me raise it up a little bit so more. So small victories and, small and, victories. and they add up. Yep. And, and like, there's a lot of uh, motor learning science behind that. Like the idea of self-organization instead of like being taught jump mechanics, like go put down a dunk and your body goes, oh wait, I made it. And that was the feedback that it needed to then go, wow. oh, those are the mechanics that you need. And it's then so- you miss dunks, you miss some dunks and your body's like, oh, that's not the way. Yeah. And so wow. you're, you're training your mechanics by, by dunking on low rims. And even what you, to tie back into what you said earlier, like that dopamine system and, and then the self-efficacy on top of it. And if we look at, um, you know, before Mondo came along and, you know, his different body type and was able to break Sergei Bubka's record, you know, Bubka would take it up like a centimeter at a time for those world record yeah. things. And, yeah. and in training, those guys, you know, pole vault, if anyone knows anything about that listening, you, you'd be nodding and saying, yeah, like they go in with very low reps in that. It's kind, kind of like bobsled, but without the crashing because there's yeah. so much <laughs> into it. Right. So they can't do that many. So th- they want to make that make to miss ratio or even in Olympic lifting, if you talk to someone like Sean Waxman, you know, at that, that really high level, they, they want to have their athletes basically rarely miss because otherwise you're just grooving it and you do not want, if you're going to be putting 400 pounds plus above your head or whatever it is in a different weight class for there to be that memory of, Oh crap. Remember when I missed this 17 times in training yesterday? Yeah, <laughs> right. absolutely. I think that reminds me of a story. I forgot what shooter it was. I want to say it was Kyle Corver, but it was one of the great legendary shooters. And he would say like most people, when they're missing shots and workouts, they try harder and they're like, no, I'm going to stay here until I make, he's like, nah, when I'm missing shots, I get out of the gym. Like mm. I'm not, I know I can shoot. And right now I'm not shooting well. And I'm only patterning this. And wow. so you're going to start, you start making these tweaks and the more reps you get, the more you pattern that. And so a lot of people go into these huge shooting slumps by like that push through mentality. Where they're actually he, just burying themselves in that slump. Yeah. Just gro- and, and grooving so, failure. Grooving failure. That's what it is. And then relating that to that low rim is like before when I'm going out and trying to dunk on 10 feet and it's fail, 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 fail. I don't get that opportunity to self-organize yeah. and rep the right patterns, the yeah. right jump mechanics. Wow. That's powerful. Talk a little bit about Olympic lifting, though, because you've talked about it recently on some of your channels. You had personally some of these wrist and hand injuries that tend to be problematic for anybody that's had those in their history and then being able to get into the positions of the Olympic lifts and and the hang or the overhead positions and that kind of thing. Um, Where do you stand on them in terms of obviously nobody's arguing that they wouldn't be good for creating power, but how do they fit with a basketball athlete or a taller athlete, for instance? Yeah. Like you said, they are effective. Like we, we have the studies showing that they are effective. It's just like most people who have also implemented something like a trap bar jump, a loaded jump, different types of plyometrics. Like it's not more effective than these things. Right. So it's hard. Like it's hard to say that we can't just get the same power output from an exercise. That's just way more simple. Um, so a, they are effective, but I just think there's other things that are just as effective, if not more, but B, like there's for me, I I actually grew up Olympic lifting. I was Olympic lifting Mm. from age 12. And so I'm kind of a rare case where I did get really good at it because most, most people say, well, you don't like the Olympic lifts because you're not good at them. You can't teach them. I'm like, yeah, okay. Watch me do it. Like I'm actually very good at them. 
But still, even being technically proficient, you're going to miss a lift every now and then. And you're not going to get your elbows up. And when you miss a lift, you're going to have it coming down on your wrist. And just like for a basketball player, I'm not willing to make your wrist sore all for this extra 1% of power that we're getting here. Because then you got guys out there trying to get up their 300 shots and like you're taking away from the sport. Totally. We can never bang them up in the weight room under any circumstance. We can't bang them up in the weight room. Um, And so that's kind of my main thing is guys just get too banged up and coaches go, yeah, but if you teach it the right way, they don't get banged up. And I just don't think that's possible long-term because I just think that you're going to miss lifts. You're going to come in and you're going to use a weight that's too heavy every now and then, or you didn't get a good night's sleep before. And you're just going to, your, your, your technique is going to break down and and an injury will probably occur. Now, if, if there was like, if we had studies saying, Hey, you're getting 20% better power in this compared to a trap bar. Well, now let's have a conversation. But if, if we don't have those studies and everybody who is doing this, like with their athletes, they're like, Hey, our results are just as good from a trap. Then like, why would we take that risk? Right. The risk reward is just not big enough. The the reward portion is not big enough to justify that risk that is going to be there, especially with the physics of the longer levered athletes who, by yeah. the way, basketball athletes don't tend to come in with a big, huge, giant training age and have all this experience with either Olympic lifts or even in the weight room period. So when you have these longer levers and you're asking them to do these complex things and you're talking about fine motor athletes who have to do something with touch, with their wrist, with their elbow, with their hands, and you're putting those areas at jeopardy, like you said, when we're talking about it's six and one, half a dozen, another in terms of results, results of Olympic lifts versus something like a trap bar, uh, jump or something like that to, or band resisted jump or whatever the, the variation that you're using to develop power, even a kettlebell swing or other things like that, then it's just, why would you fall into doing that other than the fact that that's just what I did and that's what we'll do. And we just are doing it because we always did it. Yeah. That's the main thing. And um, I, I get the one argument where, 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 if you love the Olympic lifts, the argument that you should use is it's more fun. Like sure. it's exciting to get under the bar and there's that feeling of fake fear or maybe it's kind of real fear, but it's like, Hey, if I miss this lift, I'm going to get injured. Right. That, that, that drives intent because you're like, I got to pull this bar fast. Right. So there's That's a good ele- point. That's a good point. An, there's an element of that. Like now, is that worth it for a basketball player? Absolutely not. Right. It's just like a crazy guy who's just like, Hey, I'm okay to get banged up. I just want to jump high okay, I'm fine with you using that argument, whatever. But a basketball player, we just can't take that risk. No doubt. Um, And then the other argument that I hear is that the studies show that it's like the second pole is like just this ungodly amount of power output, which is true, but people don't account that you're pulling on it with your arms. So Mm. like I can hit like 25, I I forgot what it was. I think it's like 2,500 newtons of force, not even bending my knees and just like yanking on the bar with my arm. So you're using the legs and then you're using the arms. And that's why it's so much power output on the force plate. Whereas yeah. a trap bar jump, like that's true lower body power output because you're not using your arms. Yes. So I would argue that the trap bar jump is probably going to end up being more power output um, from the lower body perspective. 
And then when you do like med ball throws, that's when you're incorporating the full body. Now you're getting the transfer of energy that a lot of people think they're getting with the Olympic list. So I just think that there's other ways to, to, to get everything that we could potentially be getting from an Olympic lift. Yeah, yeah you talk a good point. It really is. You, you talk a little bit about um, your work in the lab and kind of alluded to that. And I know you've done quite a bit at Cal State Fullerton. Have you um, ever teamed up with my co-author Andy Galpin at all and his team? And if so, what are some of the things that, that, that uh, you've done when Andy puts on his mad scientist hat? Yeah, Andy's awesome. Which is always. Uh, <laughs> right, right. No, <laughs> very smart guy. Um, I haven't done any like studies with him. We have talked about doing some stuff. Uh, I had him on my podcast a couple of years ago and it was awesome. He's just such a smart guy, especially when it comes to like muscle fiber types and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, uh, I, I learn a lot from him. We talked about getting some of our athletes in for research. Uh, we don't know anything about fast athletes and that's a huge issue. Mm. And that's something that he said on the podcast. Uh, when it comes to like fast twitch fibers, we all just throw it out like, oh yeah, fast guys are fast twitch. And he's like, well, we don't know anything about fast switch uh, or, or like actual fast athletes. There's only been one Olympic level sprinter ever tested for fiber types. And he had like 20 something percent type 2X, which is like the super fast fibers. A cheetah has like 100%. But <laughs> your, your normal humans have like 1% of those. And so we don't know that much about fast athletes at all because we've only had like this one guy studied. Wow. And the reason that we don't know is because the guys who are like legit fast jumping, they don't want to go in and get it like a needle jammed into their leg. Like there's this big, like thick needle that you need to take fi for fiber type research. And so they just don't do that. But I had a couple like really explosive football players who are crazy. And I was like, let's, let's, let's get a study going on these guys. Cause they'll totally do it. Right. Uh, so we had talked about doing that because <laughs> We, we need some athletes who are like crazy fast and bouncy and they're willing to go do this research. Um, and, and Dr. Galpin jokes about it because all these like young, intense athletes are afraid of it, but like 80 year old grandmas do it. And like, it's no problem. <laughs> right. He said that he said that one, one of the grandmas went in and she didn't even flinch. And she's like, I gave birth five times. Like, what yeah. is this? <laughs> what? this is nothing. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. Well, well speaking of, of freaky athletes, so who's who's one of the freakier ones that from a jumping standpoint that you've worked with? Uh just general jumping or like basketball? Basketball. Basketball. Uh I got this kid right now uh from Sierra Canyon, Amari Bailey, who's one of the best all-around jumpers I've ever seen. And he's only really? like 17. He's going to UCLA next year. Wow. Yeah, he's like number two player in the nation. He's he's skilled. But he's like really the closest thing I've seen to like a prime like Russell Westbrook in terms of pure athleticism. Man, he's, he's unreal, and he's six five. So, hello, that, that helps too. Look out below. Um, yeah. So, for him, I'm not really trying to get him bouncier. I'm trying to work on his ability to land. Yes. Because he's so athletic and acrobatic in the air, he just jumps and like figures it out from there. But I'm like, what happens when we land? And some of it's like parkour stuff, like sometimes it's not sticking to landing, like when to bail, like getting athletes comfortable with falling is a huge thing. Mm. Basketball players, the taller you are, the more fear, fearful you are of the ground because it's a bigger fall. But some of these guys that stay healthy, you look at John Morant, who's just jumping every single time he's falling. Like he's, yeah. 
stumble landings and he's bailing out and it's like a parkour athlete when they jump off a 20 foot building, like they're not trying to stick that landing. And a lot of these guys who are just like afraid of the floor, they're going to try to stick everything. And Mm. that's where you get like the big meniscus injuries and all these other injuries. Um, so it's like, can I do like Brazilian jujitsu type stuff with like, just fall, learn how to fall, learn how to roll and even ground-based stuff. Um, different things that we can do on the ground to get them comfortable with it and give their nervous system more options. Um, So when they're landing, they're like, Hey, I don't have to stick it. I could just fall and roll. So like, that's kind of what I'm doing with him because he's so bouncy. Um, To answer the original question of who's the best jumper. I just had this guy in named Chris spell and he's like a pro dunker ex football player, but he had a true 50 inch vertical. A, stand, a standing 46, which I think that's, oh. an, that's an all-time record, I think. And then a running 50. And oh, he, my. And he had a 50 off one foot, too. No. So he, had, he had a two-foot 50 and a one-foot one 50. Just unreal. Bouncy. Oh, right. my gosh. Paul, talk a little bit about a, a post you recently did after doing the great podcast, podcast episode you did with Andy Barr, and you talked about – the fact that you actually said on the post, this, these exercises are not a scam and just dissected the fact of what Andy does often in terms of how he gets neuromuscular in, impact on the athletes through his, his challenges and his adaptations of what he uses in, in his strategies. But you look at Kevin Durant, you look at, if you go way back, you look at what Nash was doing. Nash actually handed a lot of those off to Durant. And I saw him do some of that in terms of what he did with the Warriors mm-hmm. consulting, but also even before that he would work with Durant a lot in the off season when, when he was still with the, the thunder. Um, Nash got a lot of that from Alex McKechnie, uh, Rick Celebrini, who's now with the Warriors, but that style and how you describe it and why you say it's not a scam. And, and I couldn't agree more. Yeah, no, that's awesome insight. I never really put that together that he got it from Steve Nash, but that makes total sense. I used to watch Steve Nash's warmups in Phoenix and he would just be doing all this weird stuff. Yeah. And, and I, I was always interested in that. And then you see Steph Curry doing all kinds of crazy exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yep. And um, I love that stuff. Like I, I, it's, it's easy to go, well, it's not game realistic, so it's bad. And yep. like, even like, I love LeBron. I think he's maybe the GOAT. But, but at the beginning of the season, he had that tweet where he's like, if you're not doing something that's game realistic, like it's a scam. Mm. And everybody, like everybody got behind that statement so hard. And so I would post these like uh, movement rich drills, proprioception drills. And I started getting people commenting like, that's a scam. Why are you doing uh, this? <laughs> and so that's where that headline comes from is like, got this is it. Not, yeah, this is not a scam. Um, but look, you can't say playing multiple sports is good for an athlete. Early specialization is bad for an athlete. And then go on to say that you have to do everything game specific because what we're doing is we're filling the gaps that they're not getting from other sports. Yeah. They, they are specializing early and I'm saying, well, okay, that's the new culture. Fine. Well, then I'm not going to do everything basketball specific in the weight room and with performance training. I'm going to go sometimes the exact opposite. And I'm going to expose you to the footwork you were missing out with in soccer and the flexibility and strength that you're missing out with, but by not doing gymnastics and the general reaction that you're not getting from being a cornerback in football. Mm. And it's like, how do I microdose all of these things into our sessions to make you a well-rounded athlete? Because what players do is they build their specific skills, right? If you go 
game specific. You are going to build these specific skills, sure. but your, your systems gradually go down. And our general systems, vestibular, proprioception, all this stuff, it's very high as a young kid because we're at recess and we're always out playing and hopscotch or whatever. And then it just, it's on a gradual decline. Yeah. So the skills go up and this general systems go down and down and down. And guys like KD and, and Steph, you see them doing this in their warmup. They're microdosing these movements that they're missing out on by not doing this other mm. stuff. And so I always found that a weird contradiction because everybody will go, yeah, you got to play multiple sports. It develops you, blah, blah, blah. And then they go on to say, oh, yeah, but when it comes to basketball, everything has to be game specific. <laughs> right. Like, no, you, you acknowledge that there's such thing as like general systems that we have to enhance. And if you acknowledge that, which I think we all agree on, then you acknowledge that some of these drills are super beneficial for athletes. No question. Yeah, for sure. Earlier on, you mentioned, um, just to go, go back to your own story for a minute, this, this move with Rob out to California from Arizona. Where did that fit into your story? So you kind of caught us up with those tricky years of trying to, you know, work on your soft skills behind the scenes and then, um, you know, go from kind of this uh, Globo Gym environment to eventually, you know, doing what you do now, but catch us up with, with the years with Rob and kind of what, what you learned from him both, you know, in, in the weight room and just about the business of life as well when you made that switch to California. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm a, I'm a young kid. Like, I'm just finishing college and my business is going well in Arizona, but he found me somehow online. Like, his agency found a video somewhere online. And they kind of needed somebody to work with their guys. And they're like, we want this guy. And so uh, a member of his agency, one of the agents under him came to Arizona, took me out to dinner. And I wasn't expecting this at all. Like I'm just breaking on the scene and he takes me to dinner and he's like, these are the athletes we have from Kobe to James Harden. And I never got to work with Kobe. I, I want to get mm. a lot of stories from you eventually when we no have you doubt. on my podcast, but no doubt. Uh, I, the, one of the first guys I met when I got to Anaheim was Kobe, but it was like Kobe and James Harden and all these guys, like he's got this long list and I'm like, wait, you want me to train them? Like uh, that, that's, that's pretty crazy. And I'm always wow. a confident person, but he's really like, he, he kind of believed in, in me and he kind of threw me into the fire with it. And, um, it accelerated my growth a lot, but anyways, he, he, they make this offer and they go, Hey, like we need you in California. I was talking to my other players who were like going to the NBA or kind of around that level. And they're like, we love you. But once we're playing pro, we're not coming back to Phoenix for the summer, 120 degrees. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. We're going to be spending it in LA. And it all kind of added up. And I'm like, look, if I want to take this to the next level, I got to be in LA or New York or Miami. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, let's, let's make the move. I literally threw my stuff in a trash bag. I threw my clothes in a trash bag and I was gone. I didn't even find a place to stay. I just stayed at Airbnbs wow. and uh, stayed with this family. I was sleeping in, see, they had like this side room and I was basically just living with this random family. Wow. And, and uh, we set up shop at, there's this huge facility, American, uh, American Sports Center, 25 courts, like just this gigantic, biggest facility on the West Coast. And in the corner, this tiny little space, 1,000 square feet, it's a storage area where they just throw their trash. And I'm like, that's my gym right there. And so we cleared everything out. We put in the rubber flooring, built it out, built the fences and all that. And it was a serviceable spot and it was private. So these guys would, uh, could train without people bothering them. And he sent me one guy. He sent me 
I think the first guy was Tyus Jones, his pre-draft. And I worked with him and he loved it and he got good results. And then he went back to Rob and he's like, yeah, I like this. I want to stick with this guy. And then mm. Rob's like, okay, let's, let's try one more because he's not going to just send me like his top guys. He's going right. to like, make sure that, you know, that, that you're legit. And so a couple more guys come in and they get good results, report back to him. And then one day I got a call and he said, Hey, James Harden needs a strength coach and he'll give you one free trial session. Like you got to do good. You only get one trial session. So I drove out to Calabasas, two hour drive. And, um, I just brought like my med balls and my bands. I don't know where we're training at. And, uh, you know, I show up and I meet him and luckily we had the Arizona state connection. I had never, oh, right, met, right. I'd never met him there, but we are there at the same time. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I had some common ground with him and I go, okay, like, let's start. We're going to do this agility drill. And he's like, well, cause I'm coming off season. Like, I don't want to do a lot of agility. And I was like, okay, so no agility. Okay, fine. We'll we'll head down to this weight room. The high school had a weight room. I was like, you know, we'll do like some trap bar deadlifts. We'll keep it low rep. And he's like, ah, I don't really do that. And I was like, uh, all right. <laughs> and then <laughs> I'm like, well, you, should we do some conditioning? He's like, I don't want to do too much conditioning. So I'm like, what should we do? <laughs> like, this is my trial session where I'm trying to show what I know. And he's like, ah, I don't want to do any of that. And so luckily... I found like some, some areas where he needed to work on mobility and I pointed it out and I gave him some drills and he loosened up and he's like, Oh shoot. Like this is specific to what I need. Right. And I just gradually built it in and we started doing like med ball stuff and the energy got high. And eventually he realized like, okay, this isn't like cookie cutter. Like he's really tailoring this to my body. Yeah. I, I think he liked that. I could adjust on the fly. Um, and then from there, he's like, what's the schedule for the summer? And I was in there. And locked um, in. yeah, locked in. This is right when he first was getting to Houston. So this is right, right. when he's like starting to take off um, and where people went from like, okay, he's a role player to like this dude's like top 10 for sure. And um, yeah, I stayed with him like uh, the entire summer traveled with him to like China and Barcelona and all that. And uh, I did that for maybe five years straight, four or five years. And these were like his best years, like top yeah. two every year, MVP. Um, that lifestyle got a little bit too much for me. So I stopped the traveling. Yeah. Like it's, it was my whole life is like, whenever he wanted me to be in China, it's like, boom, I'm gone. Um, and so it, it got really tough, especially when I got a family, we adopted our nephews and like, I can't live that life. Right. So I stopped traveling with him, but he's still, when he's in LA, we work together. He'll be here for a couple of weeks out of the off season. So um, that helped me a lot, that connection and more people when he was doing really well, I started getting more clients. Um, but yeah, so Rob gave me that lob. That was the big lob that, that Rob gave me. Um, and yeah, just, I, I learned a lot from being around Rob, uh, just how he carries himself calm yep. under control, but confident and like, he'll make the decision. Uh, he, he's not going to get walked over, but he's also, not like aggressive. And I, right, think, right. I feel like that's the number one thing is like his swag and mentality is something that I picked up from Rob. And that's why he was, I, I feel like he was so successful as an agent is because he related to players so well because he had that like basketball player type, like swag, like, yes. Uh, it, Rob was just like, he's the coolest guy in the room. Just like, you know, as soon as he walks in, um, but people he's not forget like, he was on that Fab Five team. I mean, he he has right. that. You know, he he had that there because he was there. Exactly. That's where swag was invented. It was like exactly the, those Michigan teams. 
Um, so yeah, like that, that's one thing that I really got from Rob was like that swag, but still being able to like make the big decisions, you know? Yeah, no, that's so good. And I also love how you describe, like I've been in many a situation where you just, you come in and it's kind of like a trial workout. You're on audition basically. And a guy or a player is sort of going to see how they like you or what you come up with for them. And the tricky part is, look, if you just start making shit up because it's to try to have it be entertainment for them as their workout. That's dicey because then you're going down paths that you're getting away from your objectives or what they really might need. The other side though, is it does have to be engaging for them. And some of the things they do need are the basics. What you did was so perfect because you could in the moment that ability and sometimes really experience is the only way to get this, but you just have to have this ability to reach laterally, vertically, horizontally around your back or wherever you can in your toolbox to find something that resonates with the person in front of you. And then you find that thing and then you use that as, okay, let me use this of what they feel like they need to get to where I feel like they need over time. Yes. Early on, it was like, how do I impress them? Well, I got to give them drills that they've never seen, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Other, otherwise, I'm replaceable. Like if I just do the basics and I'm replaceable. Yeah. What I found out though is you don't have to impress people with the drills. You give them exactly what they need, but you win yeah. them over with your communication. Nice. So the relationship is what wins them over. And then yeah. you don't got to do the bells and whistles and throw all these random stuff. But like some novelty is good. Like let's get you some new stuff just yeah. from a, a stimulus standpoint. Like Let's get you to adapt to something that you haven't been doing for sure. But I agree, like that's the real art is like in these early trial sessions, like how do I win them over while also just giving them the basics of what they need? Totally. Yeah. I've heard you talk on other shows about that. Um, you know, a term we could give that is authenticity, right? How, how important has it been just to be, while still having the growth mindset as, as you share with us and wanting to add new things to your arsenal, whether it's technically all the soft skills and your leadership, but how important has it been to be authentic and just be uniquely yourself, particularly in those situations where, you know, folks like Harden are used to meeting a lot of people every single day and people want to try to project to them, you know, that they're this yeah. or they're that. So talk to us a little bit about just, just being your true self as well. Yeah, no, it's so important. Like that's the number one thing is they have to feel like their trainer is authentic and somebody that they feel like they can vibe with and they, they got the right type of energy. Um, I, I think people forget that a high level basketball player is a genius. It's a different form of genius. It's not like the Albert Einstein genius. It's different. But if you're mm-hmm. James Harden, you're one of the highest level geniuses on earth. It's just in this different area of like movement uh, being a genius with movement being a genius with your IQ and seeing things and, uh, X's and O's and all that stuff. Um, but a genius is always going to see through a phony, right? Like you can't have this high level thinker who's like, you can, you can't fake them. Like they're firing on a level that like, even we probably aren't firing. And so they can see right through the faker and they know who's being genuine Um, and so that's one thing I realized early on that I think a lot of people don't realize is that the athletes you're working with are geniuses. And so like, you can't, you can't fake them. You could maybe fake them for a session or for a week, but at some point they catch on to you and you can fake, you can fake it on social media, but at some point in person, session after session, conversation after conversation, they catch on to you. 
Yeah, it's like a dog. It's like a dog smells fear, man. They can they can see that stuff a mile away. Yes, dogs, dogs, babies, like they they feel they feel energy on a different level. And I feel like these high level athletes are in that same category. Totally, they, they just feel energies, you know. Totally. Paul, this has been incredible, but, uh, we want, we want to get you back on and go over just a couple of, uh, just kind of run down some of the common basketball injury areas and how you and I start to look at and tackle those together from a durability standpoint, because we're just so overlapped in how we think. So I'm really excited for that. And, uh, but in the meantime, I want to respect your time today. We do have one famous last question. This is the basketball strong podcast. So the last question is, what does it mean to you to be basketball strong? You can go spiritual, emotional, technical, all the above. Just go from your gut, go from your heart. Yeah, well, uh, I, I'm in a technical mindset right now, so I got to go technical. Good. Basketball strong, um, I think it is how you can move somebody or you get hit and not moved. And so the weight room is an early step and it's a part of it. But we hear from these guys who are just wiry strong. You hear mm. guys like Amari Stoudemire who weren't big, but guys that played against him are like, this guy's just freakishly strong. Right. I've gone against these point guards. I've gone against guards that are smaller than me. And I'm stronger than in the weight room. But when they give you a hit, you move. And it's the skill side of strength. It is understanding leverage. It's understanding, oh, when I produce force at that angle, I put more force into them. And so there's this whole technical side that I think people is it's somewhat unexplored because we just want to focus on like just the weight room and the weight room is a huge step for sure. But you can start to build some of that by standing things, standing core, standing presses, because Mm. like a standing press, like if I'm in a jammer or a standing cable press, I got to get into a split stance and I got to produce force horizontally to move this way. So that's where it can kind of start is like, oh, now you start to understand leverage. If you get somebody to stand up, they're getting pulled back. So they get low. And so you're starting to understand like the, the, the skill side of using your body to be stronger. Like you see these, these Brazilian jujitsu guys, it's not the biggest guy. It's the guy who can get under them. And I was going to say the martial arts. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a big thing. And I actually think that it's beneficial for some of these kids to grow up undersized because every time they go play basketball against these bigger, stronger guys, they have to figure that out. Otherwise they're on their back. And so you're figuring out the leverage. How do I produce force? When do I hit somebody? Because it's one thing to deliver a blow, but like the great guards in the league, watch Kyrie Irving. When he has a big coming with them, he times it right when they're getting off the ground. He gives them a, a bump. And if you've ever went to jump and you get a bump right as you're jumping, you fly. Sure. And so he's not that strong, but he's super basketball strong because of the timing of that hit. And that's kind of the unexplored side of basketball strong, I think. Um, where do we develop that? Standing stuff in the weight room, mm. wrestling, having an older brother, like the kid who got beat up. Normally, <laughs> right. has, normally has a little bit of that, that wiry strength in them. Um, you know, working with a trainer, doing different drills where you're trying to move them or the classic box out drills. Somebody was mentioning that in New York, they have this drill where when, when they're growing up, they have like, it's like one-on-one, but it's all in the paint. So it's just so physical. That's where you really learn that basketball strength and that technical, the skill side of being basketball strong. But like I said, when you're growing up undersized and you have to figure that out. Otherwise, you're ending up on your butt every single play. 
you develop that. And then later on, you develop the weight room strength. And now though you marry those two things together and you're just a freak of nature on the court. Incredible. Paul, where can people follow, learn more, work with you? Yeah. Uh, Instagram, PJF Performance, YouTube, same thing, PJF Performance. And then we have some online training programs and stuff at pjfperformance.net. Love it. Get there, awesome. guys. So good. Paul, this was just incredible. Thank you yeah. so much. I appreciate yeah. it, guys. We'll Thank talk you, soon. Paul. Sounds good. Brilliant. All right. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, and we hope you did, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. And so you never miss a weekly episode, be sure to subscribe and follow. You can find previous episodes on our show website. That's www.basketballstrongpodcast.com. For more basketball performance resources and nagging injury solutions, follow me on Instagram at TD Athletes Edge and follow Phil at Phil White Books. Until next week's episode, stay basketball strong. <laughs>